0: Hello and welcome to the
1: BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Beetles are something of the unsung heroes of our gardens. Most of us go about our lives without really thinking about them. Many of us are familiar with ladybirds, of course, while larger species such as the rose chafer and stag beetle are easily recognisable. But what about the rove beetles that patrol our compost heaps? The water beetles that inhabit our ponds, and the ground beetles that hoover up slugs and snails from our vegetable patches? Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury, and today I'm talking to entomologist and author Richard Bugman-Jones. Bugman is the author of many entomological books, including a gorgeous one all about wonderful beetles. And he's the first to admit that beetles were his favourite of all the bugs and beasties. So we started by asking him, what's so special about beetles? And how many are there?
0: Um, Well, I love them because they're sort of... They're nice and chunky and handsome. (laughs) And under a microscope, they 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 just look so elegant and suave and sophisticated. Um, that I mean that's a fairly sort of um a fairly sort of ephemeral take on beetles. But for me, my interest in beetles is the fact that there's so many of them. and i grew I grew up getting my interest in natural history from my father. and so forever, since I can ever remember anything. I was studying insects, you know, crawling around on the ground, um, being pushed around in the pushchair, looking at bugs. Um, and so I very quickly got... Um, bored isn't the right word, but I very, I very quickly realised that butterflies and moths and dragonflies, they, they were out there and they looked fantastic. But actually, um, what I wanted was something that would en- engross me the whole time. And beetles do that because there are just so many of them. And at one end, you've got the ladybirds and the leaf beetles and the longhorn beetles. And they're big, showy, pretty things that you can hold in your hand and appreciate and identify them from a picture and let them go and see their wings open and they fly away. Um, And at the other end, you've got tiny specks, half a millimetre long, which you can only appreciate down the microscope. But in between, there's a vast spectrum. And my interest is always somewhere on that spectrum. It's impossible to be exhausted with, with that sort of diversity and fascination. There's so much you know, but every day I go out, I find something I've never seen before. It might not be a beetle. I see something I've never seen before. I see a behaviour. I, I find a new species. Uh, I see a different colour variant. And that's, that's the thing about insects, is that even though they're quite small, the, the moment you start looking at them closely, there there's an infinite world there to just take you off on wondrous adventures every single day. And I never tire of them. And beetles, I think, although I... I I like beetles, um, but I claim to study all insects. Um, but beetles are very good because they've got that tremendous diversity from massive to minuscule, from well-known to practically extinct, um, to easy to identify, to not hope in hell over 100 years will I ever identify that genus. <laughs> maybe maybe somebody will in the future, but not me today. And so, so I, I never run out of enthusiasm for them.
1: Oh, that's amazing. And how many species are there exactly? And how many can come into our gardens?
0: Well, first of all, in Britain, we have a very well-known fauna of virtually everything. Uh, There's just over 4,100 species of beetle. But out in the world, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Estimates vary. So there are something between 400,000 and 500,000 species known from descriptions published in books and journals and with specimens in museum collections around the world. But we've only really seriously been studying beetles for 300 years. And and so when, when people started really looking at the rainforests and they were discovering new species every day and working out ways of trying to estimate how many different species there were, it suddenly became clear that nobody got a clue. And when when people started, they started doing fogging experiments. So they'd haul up um, an insecticide-spraying fogger high up into the canopy and spread out sheets and buckets or whatever, a huge number of collecting containers on the, the floor of the forest. And they collected all the things that fell down. And they were discovering endless new species. And by extrapolating how many new species there were, um, and how many different tree species there were in the world, and doing some fairly complex mathematics, they suddenly came up with 12 million possible species out there. Um, uh, and, uh, but those numbers are still being reassessed the whole time, and it may be 10 times that number. It may be half, a quarter of that. So even the experts can't agree, even to within an order of magnitude, how many species there might possibly be out there. Having said that, yeah, if we if we come back to, if we come back to British gardens, okay, it's you know that. So so this is that's just a further extrapolation of why insects and beetles in particular are so wonderful because they give you this fantastic vision of the world, a window of understanding, or in fact it's a window of ignorance because at the moment we know so little. But it, it at least gives you a window that you can look out and try and anticipate and measure and try try to understand what the world might be like in its sort of. Infinite complexity. Um, but coming back to gardens, um, I don't know, I think um, there are a couple of people, well known entomologists, who have done serious work in their gardens. They had nice big gardens, but I think if you could get a thousand species of beetle in your garden, that's verging on National Nature Reserve status. Uh, but quite easily, I think, you know, several hundreds of species could quite easily turn up in any garden anywhere in Britain.
1: Wow. And so, so what, what what beetles can we look out for then? I mean, I've got in my garden, I mean, I know I've got lots of ladybirds. I see rove beetles in my compost heap. Um, occasionally I see ground beetles. Um, I found a longhorn beetle on the allotment the other day. Lovely, shiny, thick-legged flower beetles, which are absolutely gorgeous. They like pollinating my strawberry plants. I mean, you know, there's rose chafers, there's, there's cock chafers, there's little beetle things that sort of swim around our ponds. What beetles should we be looking out for and where should we be looking out for them?
0: Well, they can be anyway. Ground beetles are a great one because uh, obviously they live on the ground. simple from the name Um, and you can quite often find them running around they do like running around on bare ground at the edges of ponds particularly lots of species run around or if you're rolling over logs and stones in the garden they're under there they hide in there they have special back legs which allow them to what's called wedge push. So they push as far as they can. They're quite sort of streamlined in their shape and smooth and shiny. They push into the root thatch, and then they sort of shimmy up and down using these special um, muscles on their back legs, and that then allows them to push further. So they can get under under logs and stones really deeply. And when, when you see them running around, quite a lot of them are metallic, and quite a lot of them are relatively big. I mean, by big, I mean Seven or eight millimeters or over, but you, you can see them crawling around quite quite happily. Um, my particular favourites are ones that gardeners might not be so keen on, and they're the ones that, of course, feed on leaves of plants. So weevils and leaf beetles, in particular, are incredibly diverse, and almost every species of plant, certainly every species of wild plant in this country, has. Possibly several different species feeding on it, you know, on the leaves of the roots and the stems. Um, so, and they're incredibly beautiful as well. A lot of the leaf beetles, again, are very shiny and smooth. Uh, there's a lovely a beetle called Chrysolina banksi, which feeds on black horehound which is a very common wild plant. And it, you find it on allotments, you might not find it in many people's gardens, but it looks like a beaten metal Christmas bauble. It's quite astonishing. Um, and uh, the other thing you've got the the weevils which um uh feed on lots of different plants Um, and a lot of those are covered in scales just like butterfly scales and so you get endless incredibly beautiful colors and patterns on them so they're they're ones that people might not look out for they're quite secretive in that they're hiding on the plants rather than sitting on the flowers or running around like mad things on the ground but they're they're ones that people do find regularly in their gardens
1: i really love the um the little nettle weevils that i often find and I've, i love their little snouts is that the nettle weevils have got the snouts
0: that uh, fallobius yes uh that's the thing weevils have got snouts and they vary from very short to very long and the lovely thing about weevils is that snout at the very end of the snout that's where the jaws are And the very longest ones uh, belong to the acorn weevils. And the snout is as long as the body. And of course, you've got these tiny little jaws at the end of this long, thin snout. And what that enables the, the female weevil to do is to drill a chew hole down into the plant material, in this case an acorn, right into the middle of the developing acorn bud. And then it turns around, and using a telescopic egg-laying tube, it lays an egg right in the middle of the acorn. So the grub then feeds in the acorn uh, until it's ready to mature into a, a chrysalis, and then it chews its way out as an adult. So all weevils, whether they've got very long snouts or very short snouts, have got these tiny jaws at the end. One of my favourites, the very longest one, which I've sort of nicknamed the Pinocchio weevil, it's a new beetle that's only it's only few millimetres long, grey, but it feeds on hollyhocks. And at the moment, it seems to be limited to the London area. And it's obviously been introduced. It was recorded spreading across Europe for many years, and it turned up in East Dulwich, uh, first British find. And the, the, the weevil's snout, the female, much longer than the male, because the male doesn't need to chew down to lay an egg, the female's snout is actually longer than the rest of her body. And um, uh, and you find them, and even though they feed on the seeds, they have to drill right down into the developing flower bud of the hollyhock. And they lay their eggs there, and the eggs develop on the seeds. Um, the hollyhocks are such vigorous seed producers that uh, even, even with a heavy infestation, possibly, uh, of these weevils, they're not going to do the plants any harm whatsoever. Uh, And hollyhocks just grow, they grow, they just come up anywhere. They're all over the streets of London, turning up on odd bits of land, derelict land. Uh, And sure enough, the weevils are spreading along too
1: So how is it that the beetles are so diverse, Richard? I mean, there's just millions of them and they, have, they all occupy these tiny little niches just all over the place. How have they evolved to be so ridiculously diverse?
0: Well, one of the key things is that they have wing cases. So if you think about most insects, most insects fly and they have wings and that's a fantastic evolutionary development and that's part of the reason why insects are all over the entire planet. Um, but the wings are quite delicate But beetles have have evolved their front wings to become hardened, and they become a shell-like case. So only the the back wings retain the sort of membranous flying ability. But they're folded like origami and tight, packed down, and then the, the wing cases come down over the top. So beetles can fly. They fly incredibly well. They flip open their wing cases flip open their flight wings, and off they go in a moment's notice. But at the same time, when they land, they can furl their wings really tightly, close down the wing cases, and then they can push deep down into the leaf litter, the root thatch, under logs and stones, uh, into water. You know, very few insects actually live underwater as adults. Um, So it's the wing cases uh, have partly given beetles that adaptive advantage that they can... Uh, find all different manner of niches to occupy themselves, and and the other thing is that going back to those weevils and leaf beetles that I mentioned earlier, and the longhorns that you mentioned, these are all groups of beetles which are attached to flowering plants. So when flowering plants evolved fifty million years ago, I had to think about that. I might be wrong, but whenever they whenever they evolved. Suddenly, there was a huge diversification in plant species across the world. And that was mirrored by a huge diversification of those three groups of beetles. So, in fact, those three groups of beetles virtually dominate in terms of species number. They dominate the faunas all over the world. So, although we have ground beetles and water beetles and fungus beetles and dung beetles and lots of other uh, little groups, uh, and they're, they're all very diverse... They're completely overshadowed by the almost incomprehensible diversity of those ones which feed on plants.
1: So the world we know today is largely down to beetles, really, or certain types of beetles.
0: There's a lovely phrase that um, I'm paraphrasing. It's not mine, but I quote it all the time. And that is, if an alien uh, civilization came to visit Earth and they had limited time, limited resources, but they wanted to understand how life on Earth worked, all they need to do is study beetles. And just dismiss everything else, a sampling error. <laughs> and they they would certainly get an understanding of every ecological process on this planet because beetles are there everywhere doing everything.
1: So, I mean, they really are the unsung heroes, aren't they?
0: They are, though I'm, I'm not sure. I, I I never liked this sort of idea that some insects are good and some are bad, and so you've got heroes and whatever. But they're certainly um, underappreciated compared to a lot. And that's partly because they're very secretive and people don't notice them. Um, but it's also partly because they're seen as unthreatening. So people don't like flies, because we now have this very strong association with flies spreading diseases if they bite you, or they it's painful if they bite you, or they come onto your food and they spread diseases. Um, so people don't like flies. They don't like, don't like cockroaches. Uh, grasshoppers are too like locusts, with, which sort of ravage huge areas. So, and, and moths, even though there's only, I don't know, four species of moths that attack your uh, your clothes, people have this association of certain groups of insects and they imbue them with a certain characteristic that they either like or don't like. People love butterflies, even even though perhaps some of the butterflies eat the plants or the crops that they they grow. But we like butterflies and we like ladybirds because we see them and they're pretty. Um, So certainly uh, beetles are not seen as threatening in that way, even though there are quite a few which people regard as agricultural or horticultural or forestry pests. Um, On the whole, beetles go about their life, and and if they come into contact with humans, people look at them and go, oh, that's a beetle. That's cute or whatever, and they see it wattle off. And uh, and so we're very, very tolerant of beetles, the ones we see. But at the same time, many of them are just so secretive that we don't see many of them.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of beetles are regarded as pests. And I I often get into, um, not arguments as such, but discussions with people about about the rosemary beetle, which if I had the rosemary beetle in my garden, I would be so happy. Um, But lots of people are, are very, you know, they see insects, they see beetles or often caterpillars or sawfly larvae or whatever using their plants. And they immediately panic and immediately go to remove that insect from their plant, rather than just sit and see, sit at their house and see what happens. There's a sort of disconnect there, I think, between understanding what insects are doing on our plants and um, letting them get on with it. I think
0: yeah i mean my my favorite is is the one that quite a lot of garden well, one of my favorites is is one of the ones that gardeners love to hate, and that's the lily beetle because of course if you grow lilies, uh, they ravage the thing to shreds. But from a biological point of view, they're fascinating. And I, I, the, I love the, the slug-like larvae, which is sort of slimy and glistening because they cover themselves in their own semi-liquid excrement. And I, you know, I think that's a brilliant evolutionary uh, tactic. And when the beetle come out, this bright. It's so red, it's almost painful on the eye. Um, and it's a beautiful creature. Well, that's that's one I think that polarizes opinion, as as quite a lot of people are polarized. If if they if they see something on one of their prized flowers and they get worried about it, they're not quite sure what to do. Yeah, very often the first uh, the first instinct is to get rid of it, which is mm-hmm. a shame, I think.
1: It is a shame, and I think uh, I think from experience. I mean, you know, as a sort of diehard wildlife gardener, even I sometimes panic a little bit when I see things eating my plants it's usually aphids um I've never had a sort of beetle um fear you know of 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 things eating my plants but um I always just have a word with myself and sit back and let them get on with it and just say just see what happens and usually what happens is some predator will come along and and everything balances out and it's actually so much more interesting to watch that being played out by nature than anything I could do you know, by removing those insects and removing that part of the food chain, um, it would be so nice if more people just took a step back and just watched watched the things pan out.
0: Really, that's right. I think the, the first thing is to identify what it is, but the second thing is. Yes, sit back because one of one of the mantras that I recite the whole time is: "It's only a pest if it reaches pest proportions." Now, for a lot of people, one specimen on their, it might be something eaten, eating their or coming into their house, uh, one mosquito in their house, or or, or one um, a lily beetle on their lilies, that's pest proportions. But actually. Yeah, if you sit back, very rarely do things get wholly out of control, because wherever you get a creature eating a plant, you then get the creature eating the creature eating the plant, and then you get the parasitoid, and then you get the other parasitoid, and then you get the bird that comes down to it. So they're all part of this huge ecosystem, and everything interacts with everything else. Uh, We get um, the black cherry aphid on our cherry tree, and it's really unsightly in that you get hundreds of them on a leaf and they're sucking out so much sap that the whole leaf shrivels. But we get a hoverfly larva that specializes in going in and eating the um the aphids in on that particular leaf. And because it it's it there are lots and lots of different hoverflies but if you go and peel back one of the leaf curls on our cherry tree quite often you'll find there's a hoverfly larva in there eating its own sort of captive audience um and i'm i'm very tolerant of of the tree it you know we have a few leaf curls and it looks a bit shriveled sometimes but um i i take um I take delight in the biodiversity that goes along with it, and and just ignore the fact that it's a bit tatty around the edges.
1: Exactly, exactly. I've got um, I've got an aphid wasp using one of my bee hotels, which is amazing. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, and and yeah, it's collecting all these aphids, and apparently it it shakes them by the neck to paralyse them, so it doesn't kill them; it just paralyses them, and then creates this little fresh. Um, larder of live aphids and then mm. it lays an egg and when it's egg hatches into a grub the grub eats the aphids which is just it's just glorious it's all happening in my garden
0: yeah no it's fantastic when you see those things going on Para- parasitism is a, is a, a quite an astonishing thing there aren't many parasitoid beetles Mm. so um you're very un- very unlikely to come across them but yes any uh, especially lots of wasps parasitoid wasps they're fantastic um and when i do work with children very often if you can show them a parasitoid wasp they think it's the most disgusting thing they've ever seen <laughs> and then they go off and tell everyone about it and their parents and they think it's so cool because it is it's really cool
1: it's really cool it's really cool and of course Lots of beetle species are declining, aren't there? But because we know so little about them, we don't always know how much they're declining by. Is it fair to say that most garden species are declining?
0: I think the trouble is, um, beet- beetles, it's very difficult to know what's going on because they're so poorly studied. Um, uh, there are a few, a few beetles, you know, people monitor and look at and record and they're very easy. Uh, but I... I suspect that they follow the same pattern as do butterflies. And that is that the the groups of butterflies, which are, they, they spread well, they fly well, perhaps they've got a diversity of food plants. They're not particularly fussy about where they lay their eggs, whether it's a woodland edge, or whether the grass is a bit wet or damp or, or dry or whatever. Um, so you've got certain species, very common species, common or garden species which do very well in gardens Um, but out in the the wider countryside you've got very specialist species which have a very narrow niche and they only occur in very small areas and they hardly fly so a colony if if it gets damaged or the, the the area around it the habitat gets damaged it can't really recover very well it's not very good at flying off to try and find new places and so a lot of uh, very specialist butterfly species are very well known to be declining. And although it's it's difficult to monitor this same thing in beetles, because there are so few people recording uh, lots of different beetle species, but I suspect the same thing is happening. But beetles that we find in our gardens very often are ones which are quite widespread, quite common, and they, they do very well. And they'll do very well in almost any habitat with, within reason. Um, and they 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 spread well. They fly off. They found new colonies. They're quite adventurous, so they're the ones which um, are not declining. Whereas the ones that say only occur in ancient woodland because they lay their eggs in a particular type of wood that has to be a particular fungoid stage of decay you know uh, and woodland gets cut down or tidied up or it's not managed in the same way that it has been managed for hundreds of years those are the species which are going to be declining i mean i'm i'm so lucky in south london that we get stag beetles in our garden the big stag beetle lucana service and it's a wonderful creature but i think i see fewer and fewer every year this year I've seen one. I caught a glimpse of it out of the window flying past. Um, and the trouble is that you've got a massive great beetle. It's very easy for people to identify. And, and there's a good recording scheme. So people are constantly tweeting and putting on Facebook or just uh, sending into uh, various recording apps uh, pictures of, of stag beetles. Unmistakable. There's no, no chance of it being a wrong record. Um but the trouble is that it spends a few days as an adult, many years, up to seven years, as a larva. So if you've got... Uh, and that that those larvae, especially where we are here, they're breeding in rotten wood, which is underground. It's mostly... And people don't know it's there. So these are the remnants of trees and logs and bits of wood that are buried in the soil. Um, and the trouble is that the moment somebody develops their garden or they, they do a bit of uh, re-landscaping, you disturb that habitat. If you've got a seven-year life cycle, it only takes, you know, a few hours of activity to completely destroy that colony. And I, I wonder whether, in fact, the stag, the stag beetles are declining, where they were protected, not protected, but they were, they, the damage limitation that they got from occurring in suburban gardens um, meant that they they did con- they've continued living in this area for a long time. I, I wonder, and the trouble is that it's only by looking at the records of these things retrospectively that we can see whether they're they're declining. So in ten or fifteen years' time, people might be able to look back and say, "Oh yeah, there were fewer and fewer records every year." But it's very difficult to flag up that sort of thing at the moment, in the moment.
1: And I mean, you know, so as as gardeners, really, we need to be more mindful of of these things and try and help the species.
0: Yeah, I think um, because one of the... um, I'm not a very good gardener, I have to (laughs) say. Um, But one of the things I think people need to remember is that a manicured garden, a very heavily manicured garden, is anathema to wildlife. Um, Wildlife needs a bit of wild and um so gardeners do need to be aware that what they're doing has an effect on the environment and if they mow the grass so it looks like a bowling grain there won't be anything living in the grass whereas if they let their grass grow into a wildflower meadow it will have a huge diversity and it's the same with um borders you know how 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 much weeding do you do? How pristine do you need your garden to look? Uh, When you chop a tree down, do you grind out the stump and poison it to kill it so that you can put something else in its place? Or do you leave the stump and in fact bury half the logs that you've you've cut down off the dead tree? Or leave quite a significant chunk of the dead tree standing? Um, All of these things will benefit wildlife. Uh, and so I think that one of one of my bugbears is incredibly tidy, neat gardens um, that are done as a sort of a, almost like a sort of status symbol about how pristine the house is and the surroundings of the house. And I look at them and I feel sad that the because there's, there is no need for that because wild gardens can look beautiful and they don't have to look tatty or ugly. Uh, or messy or um, they don't have to look abandoned uh, they, they can be looked after and they can give utter delight to gardeners who just want to sit down and look at the flowers but at the same time there can be this underlying extra layer of insect biodiversity and with that comes the biodiversity of, of mammals and, and reptiles and birds as well so that, you know it's a win-win situation
1: So I've had lots of of memorable beetle experiences in the garden over the year. I think my favourite one was when I made a comfrey feed and didn't put a lid on it, and the smell was so bad. The smell of these decomposing comfrey leaves was so bad that I attracted dung beetles to my garden. Oh, lovely, yes. And I was living in central London at the time, Um, and it was absolutely marvellous, and I... Have to say, sometimes I leave the lid off my comfrey um, stinky solutions, even now, just 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 to see if I can get a dung beetle in. What's the most unusual beetle you've found in your garden?
0: Oh goodness! Well, I'll tell you, I've gone further than you with dung beetles in that I've um, I've actually found dung beetles in the dung in the garden, in my in cat dung. Oh wow! And in fox dung, I got quite excited about um, the very chunky, uh, handsome dung beetle that came crawling out when I got rid of it. Um, um, I think probably the, <laughs> the most the most interesting beetle I've found in my garden is a tiny. It's a dung. It is a dung beetle, but it doesn't feed in dung. It's a It feeds in wood, rotten wood, and it's only about two or three millimeters long, and um, it's a, a peculiar adventive. It's cool. Doesn't have an English name. It's called Saprosites natalensis, um, and it doesn't even come from Natal, even though in South Africa where it was first discovered, it's actually an Australian species. And um, the only place it occurs in the Northern Hemisphere is London. No no one knows why. It's obviously got introduced uh, with probably with plants, actually. Um, And I found this thing flying around in the garden, and I'd sort of leap up from um, sitting at my uh, table uh, out on the patio with a cup of tea or whatever. I'd see this thing flying past late in the evening so as the sun was going down it's lovely and warm and the air is still snatching it out of the air with my bare hands um and then finding them all over the place uh and it, that was really nice because it coincided with somebody trying to do a dna analysis of this beetle to work out whether it had come from the original group of of beetles in uh, in Australasia or whether it had come from the secondary colonization in South Africa uh, so I was able to send off live specimens to uh, to the researcher on that one So the, the DNA analysis did show that uh, it had come from the original populations in Australasia um, rather than sort of recolonize on from uh, its bridgehead as it were in in South Africa.
1: And what does it look
0: like? Uh, it looks like a little it's a little cylindrical, creature shiny brown two and a half to three millimeters long uh, and it, it's in the same family as a lot of dung beetles so not the broad squat dung beetles that you sometimes find the slightly narrower cylindrical ones uh which uh, you very often find in cow dung out in the out in the wild uh, it's in that particular family but it's um it's evolved on its way you know in the southern hemisphere so it no longer feeds in dung it feeds in Decaying wood, similar sort of nutrient content as a lot of animal dung,
1: and is that decaying wood buried in the ground, like stag beetles, or it, it probably loads?
0: is. It probably is. Um, I found it by rolling over big logs, which are sort of half embedded in the ground, in places like um, Battersea Park. So it's it's very well established, but only in central London, it seems, um, and it chews chews away at the um, at the wood which is quite moist where it's sort of in the mud. So it's got a particular niche. What it's doing in my garden, I've never discovered. I've, never, I've only ever found it flying around, so I've no idea where it's breeding. Um, but that, that's part of the delight, is seeing something in the garden. If you've got things visiting flowers, that's great. They visit the flowers, but very often their habitat, the, the habitat where they develop is somewhere completely different because they spend a, most of their life as a larva, a grub, a maggot, whatever. Uh, feeding in well, who knows what in stems of plants in the ground in soil, uh, and but when they come out as an adult, they then fly around, and that's when you see them. Uh, for most species, still the the immature stages are a mystery. Uh, we 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 know probably what they look like, but we don't know particularly. Whereas the adult beetles are very well, are relatively well studied.
1: 'Cause lots of people are, I mean, I see sort of every year um, you know, on Twitter and and and, and Facebook and, and whatever, you know, people posting images of of, of beetle larvae that they've dug up. And um, and to the untrained eye, they they all look the same, don't they, Bugman? They do, yeah. And, and, and everyone it's says very all the, Everyone says, Oh, they're chafer grubs, leave them out for the birds. And I say, No, see what they turn into. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they could be something really exciting. But also chafer grubs are lovely.
0: Yeah, well the chafer's that come out of the chafer grubs are beautiful creatures. Yeah. Rose um,
1: chafer is one of my favorite beetles.
0: Yeah, we I don't think we get that in my garden. We sometimes get the summer chafer, which is a sort of hairy brown thing. Looks like a bumblebee when it's flying. Um it's quite astonishing. Um we don't get the big cock chafer, the big may bug, um which I, it does occur but not in our garden. Um but no the the um the rose chafer's an amazing beast. The rose chafer, when you see it flying, it's a really curious thing. I was saying earlier about how beetles have this ability to flip open their wing cases and then unflap their flight wings and off they go. Um, mostly they fly with their wing cases flapped open, but rose chafers have got this peculiar mechanism where they flip open their wing cases. They open their flight wings and then they can close their wing cases over the top. And the wing, wing case has got a specially curved notch in the side to accommodate the, the wings as they flap and fly. So when you see it flying, it really does look like an airborne emerald. It's because the sun is glinting off it.
1: I love the noise they make as well. It's It's like a sort of clicky buzz.
0: Yeah, it's very clockwork, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same with stag beetles. Whenever they go flying over, it sounds like a model aeroplane yeah. coming past. Uh, astonishing noise, especially as in our, our area, in particular, they fly late evening. So in May, they fly. In May and June, they fly, sort of between half eight and ten o'clock, mm. just as the sun's going down. And of course, it's very, very quiet then. Very still. Traffic noise has subsided. Uh, children playing in gardens it's less so so you can very often sit in the garden and it is very still and very calm and quiet and you can hear these things flying around several gardens Mm -hmm. away it's amazing
1: i used to do um i used to do bat surveys um on the river thames in and in south london and um we'd often pick up stag beetles on the bat detectors they had this oh wonderful what do they sound like when they're amplified i can't remember it was but it was some it was very particular and you sort of say, "Oh, what's this bat?" And they say, "Up, oh, it's a stag beetle." Yeah, and then you see, oh, and cool. then you see them just flying around as we were, as we were um, trying to get the bats on. Oh, wonderful mm. things, wonderful yeah. things. I don't think we get them in Brighton. I think it's because they don't like chalk, do they? So I think they have to go over the downs to get. They're near.
0: less good. No, they they occur on the weald, and um, when you get into West Sussex, which is a bit more wooded than East Sussex, because uh, I remember finding them in Arundel Park years ago. One of my seminal memories, again, when I was a kid, we were on holiday, family holiday. I was probably about seven. And we were walking around Arundel Park. And there's lots of people sort of sitting, having picnics. And suddenly, there was this grown man who'd gone into the stinging nettles to recover his football, going, ah, 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 ah. he had a stag beetle on his trousers, oh. on his thigh, and he obviously brushed against it. But he, he was waving his arms in horror. Oh. <laughs> and my father sort of strode across and picked up this stag beetle, probably gave it to me to hold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't quite remember that. But um, no, I remember that very clearly. Uh, you know, this, this grown man, completely transfixed in, in, in fear that this huge, great insect crawling up his trouser leg
1: know how lucky he was
0: no it's one yeah wonderful thing
1: <laughs> all right so finally bugman and i know this is going to be a really tough one what is your favorite beetle and
0: why <laughs> <laughs> Well, my as i said earlier the diversity of insects is so broad um it's impossible to have a favorite except i always do because my favorite is always the last one i've looked at down the microscope and i've gone wow so my favorite today is um it's another little weevil Tiny little weevil, a couple of millimetres long. but it, And it's covered in beautifully um, variegated scales, like like a butterfly wing. And under the microscope, it looks as if it's been knitted. Oh, wow. And it's really cute. Um, and it occurs on mistletoe. Oh. Uh, it doesn't have an English name, although it ought to be the mistletoe weevil. Exapian um, variegatum, it's called. And it's quite scarce in Britain. It really only occurs in the sort of Severn Valley in the west west of central England where mistletoe is quite common uh, because the thing about mistletoe it's it's really inaccessible so if ever i'm out looking looking for insects and i find an unusual food plant i think oh i wonder if such and such feet is feeding on that here so you sort of tap it over the insect net and sometimes it's there but mistletoe is always very inaccessible but about a week ago i i came across mistletoe growing quite low down on a, a derelict it's a closed landfill site so it um uh it hadn't been disturbed by humans at all Um, and there was the mistletoe and i tapped it and there was the beetle beautiful thing so that's my favorite today but next week if you did this interview next week it would be a different it might not even be a beetle might be something else but that's my favorite beetle of today thanks for listening to the bbc gardeners world magazine podcast so if you've enjoyed this episode please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app and we'll see you next time